0: beats to start the day, or I guess intermittent throughout the day.
1: I'm Anthony Smith, he's Zach Strickland, (laughs) and this is Fredonomics. (laughs) Oh, so
0: we got a big show today, Anthony Smith. We do. Uh, So we have Chris Wolf, CEO of PowerFleet, a huge uh, company that uh, deals with a lot of asset management tools, especially on the technology end. Um, especially the telematics side of things. I have lots of fleet tracking uh, technology available. So Chris has got a ton of experience uh, and a lot of information, uh, you know, regarding technology in supply chains and and really beyond that too. Uh, But he's going to join us here in a little bit. But first off, you know, one of the big... We're seeing resurgence of coronavirus, COVID-19, whatever you want to call it at this point in time. It doesn't really matter. It stinks. Um, And that's going to be, you know, unfolding here over the next couple of weeks. We're going to really see if we're going to have this second wave, as everybody kind of wants to to call it, or is it just simply a continuation of the first wave, Um, which I've seen some stats that would support uh, that one, A little bit stronger than it would on a second wave because it is hitting uh, the Sunbelt region of the United States, which is, you know, your your warmer states, Florida's, Arizona's, Texas. I actually think this is a good sign uh, in terms of arguing against seasonality of the virus because it's hitting the hot states.
1: Yeah. Out of season. <laughs> Early on, we heard that sometimes maybe the warmer weather should like help dissipate the virus, yeah. and it would just kind of fade away.
0: No, not at all. So mm-hmm. there's there's a you know fantastic opinion piece on on Bloomberg. Uh, if you subscribe to them, uh, talking about how it's a combination of mobility and uh, exposure. So if you're in a state that's already had a lot of exposure already. Uh, you 're not seeing this resurgence as strongly as we are in these other states, obviously, Florida and the southern tier states did not have as strong of an outbreak, uh, and they 're using things like death rates and some algorithms there that are pretty impressive uh, and then also the f- there 's an added effect of the people you know that are moving they' you know they 're definitely out in the world more uh, they 're not quarantining as much anybody that 's been outside has has seen this uh, effect. And so there's two things that are really driving a lot of what's happening right now with the spread of it, which makes me think, again, this is very much a continuation of the the same uh, spread of disease. And I think it's positive news in the long run uh, that we are basically going to just see it spread through the population in these little intermittent waves as they hit little pockets that haven't had as much exposure. Um, obviously, people are going to move in and out less. Uh, once we get colder again, but we'll see. Time will tell.
1: Yeah, I mean, if this hit during the winter, during some of the colder months, I mean, you're already kind of quarantining, I mean, in those when Arctic uh, areas like Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont. Yeah. But yeah, definitely this is going to be hard when people are kind of out and about during the summertime. We just had 4th of July weekend. The weather's nice and all that good stuff. It's hard to like really kind of tell people, hey, stay at home, don't go to that <laughs> beach. That looks so nice and warm and inviting, just stay inside. And ironically, looking at some of the largest cities
0: hit, largest areas hit, they're not on the coast. They're in coastal states, but they're not directly on the coast. You're talking about Lakeland, Florida. Anybody that's in transportation knows that Lakeland, Florida is a massive distribution center, basically a big warehouse. Uh, You know, it's not, it's actually a relatively new city in terms of population growth. Um, Then you have McAllen, Texas, again, another big uh, border crossing city, Uh, seeing some some big spikes there again, not it is not sitting on the beach. (laughs) It's it's kind of these coastal communities that are a little bit more rural that, again, makes me think that this uh, is just hitting these areas that have not had significant outbreaks yet. And it's just moving through the population a little bit stronger down there right now. We've got a lot more people traveling to these, uh, you know, states right now. So it's causing a little bit more of an outbreak. Uh, hopefully, I'm accurate. But like I said, time will tell. Two big stories of the day before we get into
1: our guest here. Also, I okay. forgot to mention, we're streaming okay. live right now. We're streaming live if you're watching anywhere on a Wednesday, 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Um, we're on LinkedIn, streaming right now, and we're also on Facebook. I'm watching LinkedIn right now. I think we have a few people watching. Dooner Livingstone says, hello? Hello. Hello, Dooner Livingstone. I haven't... Dooner is only... Our Dooner is only Dooner I've ever known. Dooner, Dooner. But we have Dooner Livingstone. So, hello, Dooner Livingstone. And if anything kind of catches your attention, you want to jump into the conversation as we present some of these stories. We have a special guest, as we said, or anything at all that you just want to have heard, voice your opinion type it out there in that comment box and we'll get at you.
0: Absolutely. Uh, so real quickly before we get our guest on, because he's got a lot to talk about and I want to leave enough time to dive into all that. Uh, two big stories that caught my eye today, Anthony. Uh, we've got used truck au- auction prices for three-year models really going up. Alan Adler wrote this article on Freightways.com. Please uh, go peruse this. But I think this is a nice little indicator of you know, the fact that you know, this is carrier behavior. How much equipment are they buying right now? The used truck uh, market, probably everybody's just thinking, ah, it's going to die out, peter out. Actually, it's been increasing over the last couple of months uh, on the three-year used truck prices. Uh, The four- and five-year models, not so much. They're still considered, uh, you know, they're still on their way down or or horizontal a little bit. Um, But I think it is interesting to note that we're seeing increased demand for these three-year models, these low-mileage models, indication that maybe we're seeing a little bit more recovery, uh, you know, especially as fleet turnover occurs less frequently as they're using, they're, they're waiting for these prices to come back up. They're also not getting as, in theory, they weren't getting as much mileage, but maybe they are getting some mileage right now. Um, they did take a month off, so it might take a minute. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, next up the story, uh, the PPP, uh, you know, they, the, basically the United States, uh, Gave loans, the Payroll Protection uh, Plan, loans to a bunch of companies. They released this list, just n- tons of. Uh, you know, there's a little debate over whether or not this was people who uh, maybe were approved and did not receive, did not accept, or was it just a full-on list of people that that a that got the money. And I don't think that, you know, I, the argument here is that did this actually overinflate capacity here into the third and fourth quarter? Uh, we 're going to we 're not going to know that until later <laughs> i don 't yeah. think obviously, but I think that you know it is something to watch and be cognizant of, especially as volumes start to normalize a little bit. Uh, we are seeing freight volumes die off yeah. uh, slightly, but again, something to be cognizant of here in the future. We did not see as many trucking failures uh, here in the last little bit as I think a lot of people would have anticipated. Two thousand and twenty was supposed to be a big reckoning. In terms of failures, but again, there's that argument that even if a company fails, it does not mean that the capacity leaves the market. Right, it just simply gets reshuffled reabsorbed. a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Very so. Big. With that being said, uh, Anthony, do you want to welcome our, uh, our guest to the show?
1: Yes, we have a special guest here. If you're a fan of FreightWaves now, you've probably heard me mention this company once or twice when introducing the carrier update. We have Chris Wolfe. This is the man who is actually the CEO of Power Fleet. Uh, Chris Wolfe, I think he's coming live from New Jersey, if I'm not mistaken.
2: Oh, you're mistaken. I'm actually in Tampa, Florida.
1: Tampa, Tampa Florida. Florida. Look at you doing it right. Doing the smart thing.
2: <laughs> How are you guys doing?
0: Great, Chris. Thanks for uh, thanks for joining us today.
2: Oh, it's my pleasure. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so uh,
0: I guess ahead. tell uh, you know before we get into some of the questions, I guess tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, and Power Fleet and what you do.
2: Yeah, so I have a very sordid past with logistics. I started out as a computer engineer working at Roadway Express, uh, went to work, uh, built operational control systems for them, uh, shipment tracking systems, went from there to Penske Logistics, helped support over 96 subseries with Penske, back in the day it was called Leaseway, uh, left there and went to work at uh, Qualcomm and Omnitrax and actually ran Omnitrax for five years before retiring. And then uh, just by happenstance and a friend calling me, I got the job here at uh, PowerFleet about three and a half years ago. And uh, what we do is we basically provide uh, a mobility platforms globally, uh, over 550,000 units on air today.
0: That's, uh, yeah, that is an interesting uh, background. You kind of bounce <laughs> from transportation into the technology space. Well, I mean, I guess you were always in the technology space, uh, yeah, just once in- Once a
2: geek, always a geek,
0: yeah. <laughs> I hear you. Uh, so you know, we've had you know just recently we have this resurgence of c- COVID nineteen. Um, do you are you concerned about what this might do uh, to supply chains across the globe? Do you think that we're going to see some sort of you know knee jerk reaction, you know, kind of a buckling, if you will, in the recovery process?
2: It's kind of interesting because we do have operations around the globe. We've actually looked at our own data analytics. Uh, just so you know, we actually have platforms that are on trucks, trailers, chassis, containers, uh, but also on the dock. So yeah, we're on forklifts, and we're on forklifts like at Procter & Gamble, Nestle, uh, through General Motors, Toyota. And why is that important is because we can actually see. We saw when COVID hit and actually on a geographic basis by region. And we could actually see certain sites like well, warehousing. If you were in a heavy manufacturing and non-essentials, your business just went off, you know, like off the deep end, like into the canyon. Whereas when you were in food and grocery and distribution, it just skyrocketed. And it's, you know, the data doesn't lie, right? So, Uh, What we're seeing now is everything's kind of lumpy at best on kind of the trying to start back up. You know, because do you really start the automotive plants uh, back up first without having the parts up, right? And then, you know, you just, what's your inventory levels, et cetera? It's, it's, It's kind of all over the map right now, especially in the United States, state by state. You have 50 different states doing it 50 different ways.
1: Chris, one of the things that you just mentioned was some of the hardships, especially for those non-essential businesses, things like manufacturing, heavy-duty goods compared to some of those food items. Recently, we saw that the ISM PMI, the Institute for uh, Supply Management, the PMI rose to um, over 50, so in expansionary territory with new orders, I think, having a 20-plus point gain on a month-to-month basis, kind of signifying that there is some um, roadway, some uh, forward momentum being built with manufacturing. Now, with the the recent spike and the, and the resurgence in cases, do you see this being a significant headwind for manufacturing and some of those heavy-duty goods that are kind of being ramped up right now?
2: I think when, when it's all said dead, you have to have a demand, right? So, it, you know, consumer demand drives almost everything. And uh, when you have 30 to 40 million unemployed, and in Israel, we do a lot of work in Israel, 20 percent unemployment. Uh, Again, a lot of, uh, you know, the money that's flowing through the system now is all going to run out in July. I I think there's still a lot of unknowns what happens in August, right? I do think right now you're seeing the—it was kind of pent-up demand, as well as people trying to restart their engines. And the question is, once the engines get restarted, what's the fuel going to be to keep it going? And it has to be consumer demand, right? It has to come back. And it's not going to come back unless they have jobs, right? So the, it's just, again, a chicken and egg. And right now, I don't feel like we have, you know, I know we don't. We don't really have a like a national program to get the engine restarted and keep it restarted.
1: Yeah, it's an excellent point there. I know when we're looking at from the demand aspect, um, especially when we're looking at business investment, that was already really weak um, even before the coronavirus pandemic. So uh, I think excellent point by Chris there with noting that. Yeah, so. Yeah, a lot of it,
2: a lot of our customers are putting off, and not in the trucking logistics side per se, because some of the, some of those sectors are on fire. But if, again, getting back to the heavy manufacturing, uh, like Toyota, General Motors, you know, there's a lot of uh, you know working capital. They're not going to put to work this year, you know, because they're kind of in a wait and see at, you know attitude right now.
0: Yeah, I think it's interesting that you say, you know, we're seeing this kind of lumpy recovery process right now. We're seeing a lot of the same thing. Some people are, you know, thriving in this environment, ironically, and some people are essentially, you know, dead in the water. And I I like what you said about the automotive industry. You know, you have all these huge factories that you have to have parts for, you know, almost where everybody was expecting no demand whatsoever. Now they have to turn all those factories on and now you start to see this big you know, boom in demand, but it's not necessarily for the end product. It's for getting ready for the end product to be done. Uh, do you think that's a? Yeah. Do you think that that's you know when do you think that that will start to run out? Uh, do you think we've seen the best of that?
2: Uh, there's another uh, interesting economic uh, issue going on right now, and one of one of my customers, Avis. You know, we were in a hundred thousand Avis vehicles helping them track and monitor uh, cars. Right. Well, the you know, any, anybody that's in travel and, and entertainment industries just got crushed, you know, whether it's cruise lines, airplane, airlines, or uh, rental cars. So with all those cars going, you know, out of, uh, out of use, out of utilization, guess what? Now the used car market, they're trying to sell their cars. And that, not just them. You've got Hertz and, you know, Enterprise and all of them are trying to sell cars. So now you have the, a double whammy, right? So who's going to buy a new car when the used car prices are collapsing? So, again, that's another one of those things until it's like the pig and the python, right, until that all gets worked through the system or uh, we get, you know, the travel and entertainment industry back up on its legs and get people running cars again. I mean, one, one of those two things have to, have to happen.
0: Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, it's going to be fascinating to watch it kind of play out. Hopefully it gets a little bit cleaner here soon. I want to shift gears on you a little bit um, because you have, obviously, you have a lot of experience with the food supply chain, and that's been one of the most impacted parts of this whole thing is, you know, you talked about how, you know, all that kind of dry van freight, that equipment kind of died out in March and April, but food and beverage really took off. Uh, you know, but in that process though, the food supply chain or the cold chain, as some people refer to it, uh, really had some challenges along the way with food waste and how they, they weren't able to get things where they needed to go. Can you speak to that a little bit?
2: Uh, just in general, I think, uh, it's, it's, the cause and effect, right? So, you know, the cause is really because we have a very specialized supply chain. We actually have two supply chains in food and grocery distribution. So you have one specialized to get to the end consumer through stores, through retail outlets, and you have another one specialized to get bulk purchases. And that goes all the way from production because you have farms and ranches and whatever specifically uh, targeting uh, bulk production. Uh, it Just as an example, it's like uh, on the bulk side, you know, you have sporting events, right? How, how many people are buying hot dogs at sporting events now? Well, not many. Uh, you have amusement parks. It just one data point, because I'm down here in Tampa, you know, Disney World, you know, we right store, 7 million hamburgers a year. And they're not buying those in five, you know, five-pound packages, right? You know, they're buying them in, like, cartons and crates. So getting to we have a very specialized supply chain. We literally have two. And then we don't have a lot of flexibility to surge between the two. Right, So I can't take processing plants and whatever and, and repurpose them. And I do think, you know, that at this point for the whole industry to take a look at how can we, you know, from uh, production to processing to logistics, you know, have flexibility, number one, at a national level and also search uh, potential. And that could even come into play. And I throw out the strategic petroleum reserve as a model. Right, we have the strategic petroleum reserve for just those kind of issues, like when when o- OPEC, you know, hit us back in the '80s with uh, you know oil prices and shortages. It's like all of a sudden it's like that's exactly what we just ran through. So shame on us if we don't have a strategic food reserve. You know, shame on us for you know not reacting correctly here.
0: Yeah, I think that's actually really a good analogy. The uh, uh, not that it's shocking that you have a good analogy, but it's uh, you know it's it's. To me, you know, just what you said, you, we've talked about it before on, on this show about how you have like this commissary-driven Cisco kind of supply chain where you have all this food production and manufacturing uh, to an extent. And then there's this fresh produce grocery-style supply chain. And they could not, uh, they really had no congruencies. Uh, they they it, Basically, all that food, they had to, you know, basically throw out a bunch of food. On the on the commissary side with the mass-produced food, uh, wasting a ton of it, and while in the meantime, our beef and pork prices are skyrocketing in the in the supermarket. <laughs> so
2: exactly,
0: yeah. I, I think. Well, I'd I like to
2: add,
0: go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead.
2: No, I, I would just add on to that: is uh, even before the COVID crisis, right? Up, you know, you you guys know the stats. Like one third of our food is wasted. Glo- globally, I mean, that's a United Nations number, right? So, one third, 2.9 you know, billion pounds of food. And then just think through the other waste associated with that. The actual production time is a waste, the actual processing time is a waste. All that logistics work and the handling, all wasted on one third of the food supply. And I would hope through this, we get to what's called um, repurposing, you know, because the worst thing you can do is throw that food away, you know, like it ends up in a landfill. Right. right. All that is protein that can be repurposed. And that's another thing with our systems here. So we're so optimized, you know, for cost reduction and you know just on time delivery, you know, fresh food now that we don't really think through that. You know, a lot of that food could be repurposed into protein for animals, into uh, soup you know, or whatever. Uh, and I, I think we just need to have somebody thinking at a lot higher level here on that
0: you and I are peas in a pod in terms of the way we think about efficiency and, and you know, making things better and more effective. Uh, obviously, we've both worked in data for a long time. The, uh, can you give us some examples of ways that, you know, you see technology really helping us solve this issue?
2: It, by the way, you know, part of my background is also expert systems and uh, optimization uh, systems. So it's really a capacity demand matching, right? So you think about... I think we have some great companies in the United States, logistics companies and trucking companies that do exactly this, but on a smaller scale. Right? So in other words, they can move and flex their fleets between their dedicated uh, group or their regional uh, fleets or their specialized. You know, they, They've built some very good flexible models. The problem is we don't do that really at a national level. So it's like, hey, we have a national crisis. How can we With tracking, now that, you know, there's no reason you don't have tracking, especially now with 5G, battery life is longer. Uh, Trust me, I could go on about technology forever. You know, there's kind of confluence of capabilities right now coming to play. A lot of that is sensor technology, like our sensors and uh, my competition as well. We can go down to the cargo level. I can tell you which pallet had a humidity issue. I can tell you which pallet had a temperature issue, and I can tell you which pallet had a a vibration issue. So you have 26 pallets in a 53-foot trailer. You know, why throw out all of them because you think there was an issue? You don't need to do that. By the way, now I can tell the people coming inbound, you know, because we actually have, you know, high definition camera technology that can actually tell you how it's loaded, how to unload it. Uh, so, again, it's going to speed up the supply chain, and, but also speed up our ability to react when things go wrong. And so when you do have a temperature incursion on a refrigerated load, what do you do? You know, do you change the set point on the reefer unit? Do you tell the driver to pull over and repurpose the food? You know, maybe we need repurposing food stations so that, you know, you already know you can't make it to the destination. You already know there's an issue. Uh, why let all that food go to waste? And uh, technology can help. You know, it actually gets, uh, trust me, I've seen technology when it's in its early days. And what we can do today is just light years ahead.
0: It's kind of like looking at uh, you know that DOS operating system back in the day compared yeah. to some of the stuff today. Uh, I think exactly. it's a, I think it's interesting that you have you know you're talking about vibration issues on a pallet. Uh, that's fantastic. The uh, you know can you tell us why that you know something like that might be an issue uh, for the supply chain? Why they need to know things like vibration? I think the temperature thing is is pretty important, but uh, some of these other you know one off situations that people don 't necessarily think about, I think it 's fascinating
2: yeah the, I mean just you know even in the uh, the food uh, or pharmaceuticals uh, or right now we 're doing uh, some uh, tracking and monitoring for the Red Cross going into Africa you know if you 're shipping uh, whether it 's blood supplies or pharmaceuticals or you know testing. Uh, you know a lot of that is hey it's not just temperature it's also uh you know how it was handled right if it's if it's if it's too roughed up you know when it gets there um so again the shock the vibe. And by the way, electronics—you know, like you know, specialized electronics—you know, you you really need to worry about uh, a shock and vibe. You know, those Samsung TVs that got here, and the driver accidentally went a little too fast around the corner and hit a pothole. You know, we would know that. And by the way, we'd know it was in the top, you know, front left corner, you know, versus the whole whole shipment. So yeah, as a former... and by the way, aviation equipment. A lot of people don't know that, but aviation metals and whatever are very subject to humidity. So it's it's kind of, why not get it all? Think about your sensor data now today as uh, the human senses, you know, touch, feel, hearing. We can actually listen into the freight. You you might go, why do you need that? That's like, well, there could be people in there. It's called human smuggling, right? It's like, you might be in a theft situation. It's like, wouldn't it be nice to actually turn it on and record them, uh, not only just visually, but uh, you can actually get their voice prints uh, if you needed to.
1: And, and, and Chris, when we're, we're talking about really kind of targeting some of the supply chain issues, when we're looking at uh, food uh, efficiencies and, and getting that kind of really kind of drilled down into being more efficient, not just kind of, um, you know, making sure that we're producing at the most cost efficient level, do you think incentives will also play a game or financial incentives for being able to really um, being able to reduce some of that waste in the food uh, segment?
2: Absolutely. I think, you know, what was it? The uh, Military uh, Production Act. Uh, You know, you think about, you know, that act, if it was implemented correctly, uh, could have helped with a lot of these supply chain issues. In other words, like, hey, let's move, let's repurpose vehicles. You know, if you had trucks, even though they might not be the exact same match, uh, but, you know, they were used in hauling car parts, right? And, now, you know, let's, as an example, and all of a sudden now you can send them down to haul Uh, you know, like tomatoes or oranges or whatever, and get them to the other processing plant where they can do more consumer-based processing. Uh, I think our trucking companies, I've worked at all of them. You know, they're all, you know, great Americans. They will do it. They just need somebody to help. That's what FEMA's about, right? Federal Emergency Management uh, (laughs) Agency. I mean, that's what they should be doing. They should be coordinating and giving incentives. So, because this is a key point. Companies on their own, that's why I get back to, we're so optimized and specialized, which is a very good thing when you're running optimally. It's always when there's a big hiccup, it's like, how do you react as a as a country, not as a company? And I, I do think you just need that overarching capability that says, hey, we gotta move and we gotta move now. You know, we gotta get ventilators down to Texas tomorrow. Well, by the way, we can track every ventilator, right? If you can track every ventilator, you can track every trailer, and if you can track every trailer, you can track every pallet. And, again, we can make a model that says, hey, in a, in a what we call a pandemic situation, uh, let's incentivize all, all of our companies, number one, maybe to have a little bit more surge potential. Uh, maybe some of the processing plants need to have both kind of capabilities. In other words, like if, if I'm a bulk producer, it's like, hey, I'll, I'll keep some uh, consumer-grade processing capability. But companies on their own won't do that.
0: Right. No. So we're uh, we're coming up on time here. So I don't want to I don't want to cut you off in the middle of a thought. That's really good stuff. I think the point here is, you know, we have we've we've gone through a lot here in the last couple of months. But we could also learn and grow, uh, you know, a lot through this situation, uh, doing some things that will help us be a little bit more adaptable. Uh, You know, obviously having surge protection. A lot of these a lot of these companies don't have that built in naturally because they don't have the funds to to do that. I mean, that's a risk. That's a risk management thing. So, again, Chris, thank you so much uh, for joining us
1: this week, and thank you for all your insight.
2: Okay. I enjoyed it. Thank you, guys. Take care.
1: I think one of the really big points that Chris had is because he's, he's brilliant. He's seen so many aspects. Obviously, he's brilliant. He's seen so many aspects of this industry. I could talk to that guy literally for days. <laughs> yeah, I could listen to his insights all day. And so the thing is, is like he's really attacking this at a very large macro level. And it's actually attacking the issues instead of just kind of putting a temporary fix to it. And so I think that's one of the, the really key takeaways from some of his insights here is like, it's really, hey, how do we fix this? Going forward, not just like, hey, how do we get through the next month or so as a company, or get through a quarter?
0: Yeah, no, I, I think the the you know for me, it, I think everything he was saying. I mean, again, supply chain visibility has been such a hot button topic here throughout the last uh, little bit, obviously more so in the the COVID nineteen era than it was in the trade war era. Uh, but I think it's an extension of the same thing. You know, everybody thinks because they can track their package with UPS. The supply chain itself is completely transparent and visible and we can see everything from the point of creation, the order and all this kind of stuff throughout. We really can't. Um, And identifying where some of these bottlenecks are, you know, we're recovering. We're in a startup economy, as Mike Vincent coined uh, back on freight forecasting. We're we're not really, you know, operating in a stream where we were with like a recession or a, uh, you know, some sort of straining economy. This is like a true like, well, we hit the reset button get everything back up and going and as Chris pointed out you've got all these little uneven recovery processes involved in this which is spiking freight volumes in one sector depressing them in another right Right. and uh, you know the more that we're able to see and identify we'll be able to adapt and react a lot faster
1: yeah yeah I completely agree and we have our comments going off. We have a uh, what's up from Manny Singh, Steven Stotts from uh, Port Arthur, Texas, Robert Grunwald from Atkworth, Georgia, uh, Marie Hurst listening from Atlanta. I don't know if you have. Uh, oh, and Jose Torres coming from Kansas City. I don't know if you have one of those end of show questions for us. I, I don't today because I, I was really just lining up uh, Chris. Good, because <laughs> Good, I, yeah. I couldn't handle one right now.
0: No, no, we got a lot. Well, that's our show for this week. Hopefully everybody enjoyed. And thanks again to Chris Wolf, uh, CEO of Power Fleet, for joining us. Definitely. Mm -hmm. Have a great week.